Heavenly Father, I just ask that uh, this time would be, um, would be beneficial to us and glorifying to you, that we would um, endeavor to see your heart through this study, not our own, that we would, that we would shed um, the wall that we've often built up around our, our hearts and areas that provoke us, and, and we want to keep them to ourselves. And so I pray for a restorative time. I pray for a restorative series. We take a look at some concepts and how we infuse your precepts and your perspectives from heaven onto earth. And so I ask that, um, again, that you would be saturated through this study, Jesus, that you would draw your children closer to you, that we would have an increasing view of who you are and your care for us. And so we love you. We praise you. Ask your blessing upon the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you know the synoptic gospels, you know that Matthew 6 is right in the middle of Jesus's Perhaps most epic sermon on earth, certainly not his only, certainly not his last, um, but we're taking a look here in Matthew 6. I'll have you open somewhere else. It's kind of going to be a two-part study, and, I, and I'll, I'll set the tone now. We have to lay a foundation for the rest of this series, and one of the things that we're going to be taking a look at tonight, well, I'll give you both things. We're going to be taking a look at Jesus' call per our title in the model prayer, but we're also going to be taking a look at a foundation that I hope to introduce, perhaps for the first time for some of you, that goes all the way back to the creation account, upon which I believe it's one of those theologies that upon which so many theologies cannot be understood without an understanding of that theology, and don't worry about theology, it just means a truth about God, it's not a big nerd word or anything like that, and so um, we're going to kind of do a two-part study in Matthew and then in Genesis, and as you'll see, we'll be taking a look at Genesis often throughout the study because it's there that we see God's intent, we see God's design, we see his nature at work, we see his initial calling, there's fracture and there's chaos and there's humans that get involved later, which means we screw it up just a mere two chapters later, but we need to take a look at some of the foundational understandings that God has given us in order that we may have a restored view of our calling now on earth. And so as you opened up to Matthew chapter six, of course, we are on the Sermon of the Mount. We'll pick up at verse five in the model prayer. And so Jesus has gone up and he is teaching this sermon and he comes to this part and he says, and when you pray, notice he assumes that we do. Okay. Just want to throw that out there. Anyone else struggle with prayer? Anyone? Or are we all just liars tonight? Okay. I was just checking. So I do as well. And I really struggle. Let, let me, let me put, let me put kind of prayer into maybe two categories real fast. Kind of the, the formal prayer where you pause, you stop, you drop, you clasp hands, maybe you, you put your hands on your face. I'm not, I'm not mocking this. I'm talking about like formal prayer. Does, it, you guys, does that make sense? Kind of that, that arrested, quiet, as Jesus says, do it in the closet. Don't do it out in front of other people. That, that formulaic, that not in a bad way, but that presented prayer. But then there's also the Bible calls us to be unceasingly in prayer. In First Thessalonians, I believe, it said just never stop. And you're like, well, do I do anything then? Right? If I just have to do this, can I, can I argue that there's perhaps more formal prayer and then there is ongoing prayer? And so I really do struggle with formal prayer, but by the grace of God, I think that I spend a lot of time in unceasing prayer, mostly on the motorcycle for my life, okay? But, but constantly communicating at the work. That's why you, you, you don't have to stop everything at work to pray. 
You can pray as you're going. You can pray as you're ministering. You can pray as you're at the softball fields or the baseball fields, at school, at work. But it's assumed that we do pray. And he says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Those are bone-shattering words from the creator of the universe. He says, they'll have theirs. Not like that. They'll have theirs. But you, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, this is a formal prayer environment. He says, when you go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your father. I'm going to reiterate this later. This is the single greatest key to prayer, in my opinion. The single greatest says, pray to your father. I'll expand on that in a minute. It says, who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He says, don't drone on and on and on and on and on. And ironically, he gives us a model prayer. And what do we do as kids and adults? We drone on and do this prayer over and over and over, right? It's kind of ironic. I did. I grew up just doing this over. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be the name of Jesus literally just said, don't do that. But he's going to give you a model for it, and we're going to unpack it. He says, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you have, or you have need of before you ask. See, he already knows. It's not that you have to ask him so that he knows. You ask him so that your heart would be aligned with his desires, which already exist for you. This isn't us causing God to finally think about us. This is causing our heart to understand that he's always been thinking about us. And so it aligns with his, that's prayer, that's the point of prayer. You've heard Pastor Rob say that. It's, it's not that God would do our bidding, it's that our heart would be on par with his bidding. And it says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And here he's going to give his disciples a model prayer. Jesus created the universe, says this is the framework for a perfect prayer, for a perfect desire alone between you and your father, that you would see his precepts, that you would see his perspectives from heaven on earth. And so he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And he says, our father in heaven. I would argue that this is the single greatest key to prayer. The Jews, this was incredibly unusual for the Jewish people. Before Jesus used this term, there is absolutely inside the Bible, outside the Bible, there is no reference of referring to God, no known inference that God could be declared a father. And Jesus said, I have come from heaven. I was sent from the Father. And he says to us, you call him Father. If you struggle with prayer, if you struggle with formal prayer, if you struggle with 
ongoing prayer. Know that Jesus consistently himself modeled that the key, I believe the key to prayer is speaking as to a father. Now, some of you have poor earthly fathers. That conjures up tough feelings. That conjures up struggle, strife, history. But I want you to be restored in that everything you desired from your earthly father that he didn't give you can be found in perfection in your heavenly father. I had a great father. When I hear father, I get excited. I'm not ashamed to say I just had an amazing father, loved and served Jesus till this day. Never raised a hand to my mom. I've never heard my dad elevate his voice to my mom. He elevated his voice to me one time when I was yelling at my mom. And he said, this is my wife. And I went to slam the door and he stopped it and said, this is my house. And he raised his voice to me. Never, I've never seen my dad even argue with my mother. Never be anything but kind, caring, loving to my mother, to my siblings. Loved and served Jesus in the church his whole life. I have a great father. So I love to hear that. Some of you had a terrible father, but I hope that you love to hear that you have a perfect father because my dad was great, but he wasn't perfect. And so when you pray, ask in a way that you're speaking to a father who cares about you. He says, our father in heaven. This was considered too intimate for the Jewish culture. It's too close. They had this, this awestruck reverence, which we could learn from, but they had this this almost this resistance to the intimacy. And Jesus says, he has a special title, which means you have a special relationship. You have a special access now, right? I would hope that in, in a model parent that you, father means special access, does it not? Like if, if I'm at work and my wife texts me, one of our kids is sick, I leave. If you text me while I'm at work, you're like, I'm sick. I'm like, go to a doctor. I'm working, right? Special access, yeah? I run home. I'll run home. I did it, I did it two weeks ago or a week ago when my boy was having issues with his stomach. Wife said, I'm going to the emergency. I got up, it's peaced out. The office said, kids, right? Special access, special movement of my heart. Why? Because there's a special relationship. Doesn't mean I don't care about other people. It just means that my children have special access to me and God says, it's all of you with me. Father, our Father in heaven. This title demonstrates a privileged access and a privileged relationship. And it's very interesting to note that this entire prayer, by the way, is based on community. It's not based on singularity. You are saved individually, but we are not saved to individuality. Notice the prayer. It says, our Father, give us, forgive us, do not lead us, but deliver us. God says, remember to pray for the body. Remember to pray as the body. This is not you versus the world. You're not David versus Goliath. Jesus was the greater David. Remember, we are part of a body. We are part of his children. Morgan, the the theology guy, that's what I call them, theology guys, said man enters the presence of the father and then prays as one of a great family. And he says, a father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You need to know, we won't go into it, we don't have time, but you need to know that one of the great 
arcs of the entire Bible is God passionately pursuing his name for his namesake. The Bible says when he rescues children, when he saves children, when he brings them out of the wilderness, when he loves and cares, it's not because we deserve to be loved and cared. It's because he's ultimately and passionately pursuing his glory. Why did he save me? Because it serves his glory the most. Why did he bring Israel out of the desert? Because it served his glory the most. Why did he send Jesus to die on a cross? Because it served his glory the most. It doesn't serve our ambition the most. It serves his glory the most. And he says, hallowed be thy name. It's a passion for God's glory, for God's agenda first and primarily. He says, hallowed be thy name. And Jesus knows that, that the father is passionately pursuing his glory first and foremost. And that has every good implication for you, by the way. People say, why did God let sin enter the world? Have you heard this? And I say, I I try to understand. I said, in some ways, I don't fully know, but I can tell you this from studying scripture that ultimately this story, ultimately this narrative, ultimately this redemption would lead to his highest glory. I think it was Pastor David Guzik that said, we gained more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. This story, having to send Jesus die down to die for our sins is ultimately what served his glory the highest. It serves his glory higher than if Adam and Eve never sinned and everyone just lived perfectly with God forever. His glory would have not been served. His name would have not been served to the greatest extent. This is his story. Jesus says, hallowed be your name. We live in a time where it's about raising our name. It's about our fame. Jesus says we're about his name and his fame. Hallowed be thy name. We're called to guard our own name and our own reputation. Me as well as you. We're called to resist the tendency to protect and promote ourselves. Instead to put God's name, his kingdom, and his will, I would say again, his heavenly precepts and his heavenly perspectives that we would reflect those in a broken and dying world. Jesus says, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he says, your kingdom come. By the way, his kingdom's coming, do we know? Right? Like there's all the hope in the world. Okay? Notice the the cross happened thousands of years ago and we're still here. Story isn't over. We know through full revelation how it ends, but this is an active and ongoing gospel. We don't get to sit between the crucifixion and the consummation and say, we're just waiting. I would have ducked when Jesus said it's finished from the cross. Seriously, I would. He said, it is finished. I would have been like, oh man, here we go. It's finished, right? But what happened? A lot of stuff happened, but why are we still here? Why do we have to work next week? He said it was finished. It's not complete. Signed, sealed, and delivered salvation for all who would receive, but the gospel is still active and alive. And there's a calling in our life. It doesn't get us off the hook. Tired of Christians that act like there's no playbook. You can be on the team. Doesn't mean you're on the field, right? We just went through a series on Sunday night, took a look at the schemes of the devil. Have you ever noticed that the defense on a football team doesn't tackle the guys on the bench? Anyone ever notice that? You ever seen them tackle a guy on the bench? Why? No, because they're no threat to them. They're on the team, aren't they? Wearing a jersey, aren't they? Why don't they get tackled? No, they're not doing anything. Not yet, at least. You step onto that field, guess what happens? Oh, target. Now you're going to get punched. 
Now Satan and his demons want to go after you. There's a game plan. There's a, there's a call. It's not to simply look back at the cross and wait for the consummation. We're called to be salt and light on heaven as it is in he- on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. And so this is not our kingdom built from our desires. This is his kingdom built around his desires. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not our will built from our desires, but his will built around his desires. And he says, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, this is the mark of a perfect prayer. That we would step into a place of intimacy with the Father and say, not my will. And by the way, who modeled that for us? Some people are like, well, hold on, I have some ambitions. I don't know if I need to be submissive in that sort of regard. Who did that perfectly? Jesus himself, yeah? By the way, if you've never heard me teach, the answer is always Jesus. I'm just going to give you an A the rest of the test. Just when I say answer, just answer Jesus. Okay? Did Jesus not in the garden before the cross say, look, if there's any other way to do this, God, Let's go with that. Let's go with plan B. Is there a plan B? If not, he says, but not my will. What do he say? But thy will. And so if Jesus himself can be in functional submission to the Father, how dare Christians be like, well, I don't know if I really need to be so, you know, submissive all the time to the Father. Christian means little Christ. Christ came and said, not thy will, but thy will. Not my will, but thy will. And he's God. The Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit. Spirit glorifies Jesus, and Jesus came to do the will of the Father. His functional submission that runs up and down. We're going to see that in the marriage. We're going to see that in family. You're going to see that in church. You should hope to see that in government. You should hope to see that in your work. You should hope to see that in your school. Functional submission, something that God has always modeled. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our passionate prayerful plea that God would manifest his heavenly reality on earth. Let me say that again because I got slightly impressed with myself in my own notes. It said, our passionate prayerful plea, it's three Ps, I love alliterations. Passionate prayerful plea is that God would make manifest his heavenly realities on earth. I myself get caught up in wanting to create my ideal realities on earth. Anyone? There's room full of liars again. (laughs) Anyone else? Wake up. The first thing off the top of their mind is, first thing out of bed is, what do I got to do today to get what I want out of today? Right? We all do it, myself included. I'm worst in the mornings. I get up and I go. I get up and I go. Hit the ground running, I do. It's rare that I stop and say, not my will but thy will. A passionate, prayerful plea that his heaven reality would be made manifest on earth through me. As image bearers before our father on earth as it is in heaven. As husbands and wives before our father on earth as it is in heaven. As moms and dads and children's before a father on earth as it is in heaven. As laborers and professionals and workers before a father on earth as it is in heaven. As members of the body before our father on earth as it is in heaven. As citizens of heaven yet residents of earth on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says, 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's at this point that I want you to turn all the way back to Genesis 1 with me. Because we're not only, I think, called to look back at where the foundation, I would argue, for this began. It's where the foundation for everything began. Genesis 1. As I said, I, I fully believe that what we're about to endeavor to is, is one of those baseline theologies upon which so much is built, so much is understood, is through some of the earliest theology, these thir- earliest understandings. If, if, if you've got trouble with Genesis 1, you're going to struggle the rest of the Bible. You're going to struggle the rest of your life if you don't accept what God declares to be true, what truly, literally happened in Genesis 1. You're going to see ramifications for life. My wife and I do premarital counseling. We just did another couple, two weeks. Where do you think we started? Genesis 1. We didn't start with, oh, here's the roles of men and women. We started with, in the beginning, God created This, I believe, sets the foundation for so many, if not all of our understandings in theology of God, of his precepts, of his perspectives. And so we're going to do a a good amount of reading. I'm going to try to kind of skip through it and not do my usual way too long hour and 15 minute sermons that people have become accustomed to on Sunday nights. All right. But it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you need to understand that right away, there are two categories for all things ever. Creator and created. That's it. Two buckets. Everything fits into those buckets. And there are sublevels and secondary and tertiary. We're going to get into some of those, but you need to know there is creator and created. God as uncreated creator. It doesn't say, it, it says in the beginning God. So he was already there. This isn't the beginning of God. This is the beginning of the concept of time. He sits outside space, time, and material, which by the way is why Science can't prove that there is a God, and Christians need to stop saying science can prove that there is God. Now, there's evidence for God. There's no proof of it. Why? Because you can't prove with time, space, and material something that's outside time, space, and material. Amen? Now, don't worry. You can go right to the incarnation. You want all the historical data. You want all the archaeological digs. You want true evidence that God touched down for certain. But it says, in the beginning. So this is the creation of the space-time continuum. This is not the beginning of God. This is the beginning, and God was there. And he said, now you guys can start you will. That's how I interpret it. He's a little sassy in my mind. Okay. In the beginning, God created creator, uncreated God. And then it says the heavens and the earth, everything else is created. That means it's finite. It's temporal. It's dependent. It's changing. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit are infinite, independent, unchangeable. Some of the things that are created, you're going to see are cosmic and earthly elements, the heavens, the earth, the water, the land, the light, the dark. Some of these are living things, plants, vegetation, fruits, herbs. Other have the breath of life, birds of the air, beasts of the earth, creatures of the sea. 
But I want us to note something. We're going to start in verse 11. So he's gone through, he's created heavens, the earth, water, land, light, dark, plant, vegetation, fruits, herbs. You're going to see this, but I want us to pick up on something that he repeats nine times. Because these creatures, these, this part of creation is really not the point of the chapter. He's going somewhere the whole time. And so he's going to say something nine times, but I was not redundant for no reason. He's going to say something nine times. We'll start in 11. It says, then God said... Let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields the seed and the fruit tree that yields the fruit, what? According to its kind. Whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and herb that yields seed according to its kind. And the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were on the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens and divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons for the days and for the years and let them be for lights in the firmament and for the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the sun. People will say, God says there's two suns. There's not. There's the fact that one is producing light and the moon reflects it. So it's a lesser light. Got that? Cool. It says, he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light to the earth and rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound in the abundance of the living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament and the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. These are with the breath of life, as I said, which with the waters abounded according to their kind. And every winged bird, what? According to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Ever heard that before? He's talking to the animals, be fruitful and multiply. There are similarities, but there are also vast differences. He says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle and creeping thing. And the beast of the earth, each what? According to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. I think I counted nine. That might be ten right there. I don't have that one underscored. Cattle according to its kind. And everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. Some people are like, stop it. He's doing this for a reason. It's not me. He could have said it one time. He's doing it every single step of the way, according to the kind, 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 over and over and over. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, then God said, let us make man in our image according to what? Our likeness. Something different happened. Something different has happened. Rob's been starting to use slides. I got a little jealous because I used to use slides. I came up with one slide. Here it is. You ready? It's going to blow your mind. There it is. Who knows what, who's heard of this before? The Imago Dei. This is that theology that I, I, I truly believe is a foundational understanding upon which 
So much, if not all of our understanding can come from. That's why it's in chapter one. God wasn't like, I'll just see if they figure it out. He starts the whole thing and he says, then God said, let us, triune language, right? Got to start there with your Jewish friends. Got to start there. I've done it at the office. Well, no, but the language, no, it's, it's plural. I'm going to wrestle with that a little bit. Not more than one God, but multiple persons in one God. Elohim. And you know, him is always multiple, yeah? And I'm like, oh shoot, he knows a little bit of Hebrew. Us make man in our image according to our likeness. God did something different. Mankind is not created according to any other kind. Mankind is not created according to any other kind among the living creatures. Mankind does not belong to their kinds, whatever similarities there may be. You may not find similarities with an herb, but you may say, hey, my dog has eyes and ears and a heart and organs. So do I. But you need to know that our two natures have been created very different. One is lower creation. One is humankind. We are not God, but we are not animal. And, and by the way, those are, those are virtually every competing world ideology says either you are God or you are animal. Think about that this week, right? You are either everything, the source and sum of truth, or you are nothing but a biological reaction that can only respond to your instincts, right? You're either God or animal. Bible says you're neither. You are mankind. Submissive to God with dominion over animal kingdom, over the animal kingdom. So we are not God, but we are not animal. And I do a little bit of counseling here and there with guys. That's generally one of the ways I start. Genesis 1, they're generally struggling with either they're God or they're animal. (laughs) Girls are laughing, guys are not, right? (laughs) Girls know things to be true that we are you know, too animalistic to understand, apparently, okay? But it's true, God or animal. Ladies, same, okay? Now, notice the guys didn't laugh. They're being nice to you tonight, okay? So, and so this is what I want to do is just a brief, is the second half of our study, just a brief introduction to the theology of the Imago Dei. Because without this foundation, you could argue in circles that nothing else matters after this. But if there is a special and unique calling imprinted before sin, when everything was perfect, when everything was very good, when everything was good and then he created man, it was very good. If there's something different here, it has repercussions for everything everywhere. And so mankind is not God, but mankind was and is made according to God's kind in the image of of God. And I just, I just, I want to love on you here tonight. Some of you have been absolutely pummeled by the world and you have forgotten. You have lost sight. Perhaps you have never been cared for in a way that says God has a unique perspective on you. He does not look at you the same way he looks at the rest of creation. He sees you unique and beloved. He's given you a soul, a desire to seek him, a desire for truth, 
There's a special calling and responsibility, but I want you to know that God sees you as unique and purposed and he's created you with a reason and he knit you together in your mother's womb, different than your dog, different than the herb, thank goodness, different than the birds, majestic as they may be, different than the mountains, different than the ocean, as beautiful as it may be. Jesus says, I'll take you over every sunset for all of human history. Why? Because you are stamped in my image and I created you that way. It's the beginning of the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Mankind, like God, is a personal being. It's one of the ways that we understand and reflect him, not a supernatural force. But a personal being, man intrinsically, listen to me, mankind, gentlemen, ladies, ladies, Gentlemen, elderly, young, babies, middle-aged, don't care. Mankind intrinsically has more dignity, more value, and more worth than all of creation. Rest in that. You have more dignity, more value, and more worth than all the animal kingdom combined. This is why someone who's paralyzed head to toe, we believe biblically has more dignity, value, and worth than the highest prize winning racehorse ever. Can give nothing to society, can produce nothing for society, must be, must be helped every step of the way, head to toe, paralyzed, but stamped in the image of God above all creation. This is why if your neighbor's house or if your house is burning and you have time to grab one thing, there's a child and a dog, you grab the child. It, it's, kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird statement, but they've done studies. They've asked children. They've asked young kids. Not, not super young. I think they were preteens. Your house is burning. You can save your dog or your sister. What do you pick? A lot of them pick dog. Or Neighbors. They go to the neighbor. They don't know the kid or the dog. Is it your dog and their kid? I pick my dog because they associate with possessions, things that are mine. Animals are possessions, right? Property, not people. We love them. We have many rescued animals come through my house. Love them dearly. Possessions, not people. Take my kid over them every time. This is why cannibalism is wrong, both biblically and legally. And eating steak at Mastro's is not. If you haven't had a steak at Mastro's, you need to. As image bearers, mankind is given a measure of sovereignty over the earth. It says later that we're given dominion over the fish and over the birds and over the livestock and every creeping thing. Mankind is called to subdue the earth, it says in, in verse 28. In fact, let's keep reading. It says, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish, over the sea. That means to bring forth its potential. Bring forth the potential which he has given us. Keep in mind, sin hasn't even entered the world yet. He says, you'll be created in my likeness. You'll have dominion over lower creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
despite the, cons- despite the current conversation, it comes down to a Y chromosome. I've had this discussion many times with folks. Christians need to be able to compassionately but very clearly state this truth in the, in the, in the modern transgender arena. And the irony is that as Christians, we stand on not only the Bible, but science in this regard. They say, well, but if hormone levels and testosterone, it doesn't matter what gas you put in a truck, it's still a truck. It's not to belittle those that are struggling with this, but, but you need to know that as, as Christians, we have nothing to fear from science. Nothing to fear from the idea that there's a Y chromosome or they're not. It's male and female. God wasn't wrong. It was male or female. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything, living thing that moves on the earth. Psalm 8 makes it clear that mankind is, has this ruling, this conquering position over lower creation. That it's been placed under mankind's feet, but this is not by way of tyranny or exploitation. Genesis 2, as we won't get to tonight, 4 through 25 shows us that man is to follow in the example of God in his stewardship on earth. That which God has given us in your marriages, in your family, in your schools, in your work, in your government, in your hobbies, in your businesses, in all facets of life, God says one of the ways that you begin to reflect my image is by stewarding it properly. And he doesn't hope we just figure it out on his own as we're gonna see throughout these coming weeks. He gives us the precepts and the perspectives from heaven that allow us to nurture and guide these areas of our life so that not so that people will see us because we're in a closet, but so that when they see the reflection from us, they would see the reality of God in heaven and long for the same. We see that God will plant a garden of Eden. He puts the man there to work and to keep it. By the way, work is not the result of sin, as most of us feel on Mondays, right? Sunday, you come off that high. Monday, you wake up, you're like, oh, when will Jesus come back, Right? I love my work. Still struggle sometimes on Monday, don't you? Look, a lot of times when I was preaching on Sunday nights, I'd have a hard time going to bed. There's physiological studies talk when you preach, especially kind of in this kind of not, you know, droning on, you know, and and kind of the old style of preaching, but kind of that that spirit-filled preaching that I, I believe we exude here as a church that comes from the word of God and the Holy Spirit himself, that, that we, our, our adrenaline spikes anywhere from like three to seven times. You think it's easy for me to just go home and crash at 10? I'm up till like two and then six comes and work and oh, if I just didn't have to go to work, but work was there in perfection. Jesus came and he worked, didn't he? 18 years at least. And then in heaven, we're going to see work, by the way. Sorry to bum you out on some of that one. Don't worry. It's going to be great. (laughs) It's going to be as it always was intended. But we see that he puts man in there to work and to keep it. And so what God initiates, listen, what God initiates, what God initiates, we, mankind, God's children, the church, are called to steward and cultivate. Not be passive, as Jesus taught, 
that people will just run over you. See, unlike the animal kingdom, which responds to its environment out of instinct, we're called to be salt and light, which changes the environment despite our instinct. We have a higher calling in our marriage. We have a higher calling in our family. We have a higher calling at work, a higher calling as citizens. We have a higher calling than animal kingdom, which responds out of instinct. We're called to steward and cultivate. And so we're going to see in, through the course of this study in different areas how God calls us to a restored view because the image of God has been broken. Make no mistake, it only took two chapters for us to screw it up. Two chapters. Adam and Eve were in perfect shalom with God. Perfection. In fellowship and relationship and communication and praise. And then they chose themselves over God and sin into the world and fractured it. And it not only fractured us, it fractured all of creation. All of creation is now fractured and it's a broken mirror, if you will. Imagine shining a light off a perfect mirror. It comes and it bounces in one general direction, does it not? I thought about doing it tonight. I wasn't going to bug you. I was going to see how it, show you how it feels to be up here with one of these, right? And it would, it would hit and it would reflect based on the angle, yeah? What happens if I just crack that? And do the same thing. What happens? Like this, right? By the way, that's a metaphor for your life. Okay? So, <laughs> supposed to be like this, like just gangster, like, oh, like just, oh, that guy loves Jesus. It's sort of like, oh, I don't know what he thinks half the time. Okay? And so when, it, when, when, that, when, that, when, when God's perspectives hit this, you need to understand some of the reason you're struggling is because you read what he says, you don't want to always do what he says, or you try it and you're terrible at it, just like me. It's because it's hitting this fractured mirror now. And his image is being distorted in the world, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a call. Because if, if it was up to me, the whole Bible should have ended in Genesis 3. Right? Like if I wrote it, because I'm a jerk, I would have been like, yeah, you screwed that up. I'm not going to allow my image, my reputation to be torn. But this would serve his glory the greatest. That broken people would be put back together on earth before other broken people that God is calling to be put back together on earth. And so his image, his perspective, his, his reality comes and it's fractured, it's broken and we struggle with that. And so what we are asking is that God would begin to mend that and restore that and repair that so that our perspectives, our precepts would be from heaven, come to earth. And that's in every area. We don't have, we, we can't do every area of your life in six weeks, but we're gonna go as far as we can. Sound good? We need God to restore and redeem the time, the treasures, and the talents that we've been given in our marriage, in our family, in our work, in our church, in our citizenship. Because ultimately, Jesus says, the perfect heart rests before a father. He says, I'm broken and fractured, but not my will, thy will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus... I ask that we would just begin to be stirred. Holy Spirit, that you would just begin a work in us as we endeavor to look at areas of life that are connected to your reality, your perspectives, your precepts, reflecting you to a broken culture 
on earth until you return to earth to restore all things for all time. So I ask that you would just begin that work in us midweek, month, like just Wednesday, hump day. Just do it now radically. Set us on a new trajectory in our heart, in our study, and in our prayer. That begins now because you assume that we will, myself included, that we would begin tomorrow morning, that we would end tonight by saying, God, show me your reality and how I can navigate this mess reflecting what you say to be true. So Lord, I pray that we would come with anticipation, myself included, as I, as I put the study together, that I would continue to, to study in anticipation of what you want for us. Not scared of, of the calling and the responsibility that we have to be salt and light so that we would not be trampled a foot under man's foot, but that we would be unlike the animal kingdom, that we would change our surroundings, not simply respond to them. And so, Jesus, I ask you to go to work. Holy Spirit, I ask you to go to work in a way that I cannot. It's to begin to change our hearts, myself included, begin to change our hearts so that we would be more in line with your will, not our will, but thy will. It's our, our passionate, prayerful plea that we would see a reality and want to make it manifest on earth. So I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray for, for healing and a restoration in all areas of our life that would begin now because it's what you desire for your children. Jesus, I can't wait to see you again. Until then, we have work to do. In your name, amen.